Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, math fans, Jason Marshall, Math Dude, here with your weekly dose of quick and dirty tips to make math easier. It's that time of year again when people all across the nation who don't really know or care much about college basketball watch a lot of college basketball. So if you, like millions of other people, have spent a significant number of hours over the past few weeks watching the NCAA tournament, you're in good company. Because it's March, wherein there is madness. But is there math in this March madness? Are there perhaps numerical fun facts waiting to be discovered? Indeed, as usual, there are lots of them. And today, we're going to talk about three of my favorite, including one that will help you understand why that bracket you spent so much time toiling over turned out so terribly. Before we get into the nitty-gritty details of the NCAA basketball tournament, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about tournaments in general. In particular, I'd like to talk about how single elimination or knockout-style tournaments are set up, because there's some pretty cool math within their structure. To begin with, barring some fancy finagling with buys or the like, every single elimination tournament, whether it be the NCAA tournament, the knockout stage of the World Cup, a major tennis championship, or whatever, starts with an even number of teams, which makes sense because every team must have another team to play in the first round. But not only are there an even number of teams, the number of teams must actually be a power of two. Again, barring some more of that fancy finagling, which we'll soon see the NCAA tournament actually contains a bit of. If the tournament takes, say, four rounds to determine a winner, we know that there must be 2 to the 4th power or 16 competitors, since 16 teams in the first round beget 8 teams in the second quarterfinal round, which beget 4 teams in the third semifinal round, which beget 2 teams in the fourth and final round, which determines the winner. And that leads us nicely to the question that will give rise to our first numerical fun fact for today. How many games are required to determine the NCAA tournament winner? And in general, how can you quickly figure out the number of games needed for any tournament? There are at least two ways to think about this, the hard way and the easy way. Let's start with the hard way. As we've seen, once we know the number of teams in a tournament, we can fairly simply figure out the number of rounds it'll take to determine the winner. Namely, since the number of teams in a tournament must be equal to 2 raised to the power of the number of rounds played, we know that, for example, a 64-team tournament like the NCAA tournament must have 6 rounds, since 2 to the 6th power is equal to 64 teams. I know technically the NCAA tournament starts with 68 teams, but 4 of the low-seeded teams are quickly whittled down in a sort of pre-tournament tournament leaving us with 64 teams in the main bracket, which is what we'll focus on. Okay, if you think about it, you'll see that each round must contain half as many games as there are teams in that round. So there must be 8 games amongst the 16 teams in the NCAA tournament's Sweet 16, 4 games amongst the 8 teams in the tournament's Grade 8, and so on. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Putting this all together, we see that a six-round tournament must have 32 plus 16 plus 8 plus 4 plus 2 plus 1 or 63 total games. That's the hard or at least somewhat laborious way to figure out the answer. The easy way, which will work for any tournament, is to realize that in any, say, 64-team tournament, there must be one winning team, and therefore 63 losing teams. How do you get 63 losing teams? Well, you have to play 63 games. So there's your answer, just like that. Now, if you, like countless other people, spent time this spring filling out an NCAA tournament bracket to predict the various winners and losers of these 63 main bracket games, you may have come to the realization that this is a lot of games to predict. And that having to predict so many games means that filling out a perfect bracket is a really, really, really hard thing to do. How hard exactly? Well, let's think about the math. Let's assume that you have a 50-50 shot at guessing the winner of each game. In truth, if you study up on the teams, you can do a bit better than 50-50 with some of the matchups. But let's keep things simple and make this assumption. In this case, the probability of your predicting the winner of the first game correctly is one half. After two games, there are four possible outcomes. One, you guessed both games correctly. Two, you were right on the first but wrong on the second. Three, just the opposite, where you were wrong on the first but right on the second. And four, you guessed incorrectly for both. So after only two games, your predictions will be imperfect 75% of the time. And the news only gets worse from there. The general trend is that with each additional game played, your odds go down by half since the number of possible brackets grows by two. In other words, there are two possible brackets in a one-game tournament, two squared or four possible brackets in a two-game tournament, two cubed or eight possible brackets in a three-game tournament, and so on. The number of possible brackets is always equal to two raised to the power of the number of games played. Which brings us to our second numerical fun fact of the day. There are 2 to the 63rd power, or a bit more than 9 quintillion, which is 9 billion billion possible brackets in a 63-game tournament. Which is why, as I mentioned before, it's really hard to perfectly predict an NCAA tournament bracket. In fact, as far as I can tell after digging around the internet for a while, it has never actually been done at least as far as anybody seems to know about. And that really shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, it would be amazing if it had been done before. After all, 9 quintillion is a huge number, and your odds of predicting a perfect NCAA tournament bracket are about 1 in 9 quintillion. Just how long are those odds? Think about it this way. Imagine you correctly predict 10 coin tosses in a row. This might be kind of unlikely, but it's definitely possible to do. But now keep tossing the coin another 10 times, and then another, and another, and another, and yet 10 more times. And keep correctly predicting the outcome each time without a single miss. And then for good measure, do it three more times. That's a lot of perfectly predicted coin tosses. Which brings us to our final numerical fun fact for the day. 
the odds of predicting a perfect NCAA tournament bracket are roughly the same as the odds of winning 63 coin tosses in a row. Those are indeed really, really, really long odds, which is why nobody has ever managed to predict a perfect bracket. And it more than likely explains why your and everybody else's brackets turned out so wrong. Okay, that's all the math we have time for today. For more fun with math, please check out my book, The Math Dude's Quick and Dirty Guide to Algebra. While you're out and about on the internet, please remember to become a fan of The Math Dude on Facebook at facebook.com slash themathdude and on Twitter at twitter.com slash jasonmarshall. Until next time, this is Jason Marshall with The Math Dude's Quick and Dirty Tips to Make Math Easier. Thanks for listening, math fans. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.